Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Abalone Mountain Press podcast. My name is Amber McCrary. I am the owner of Abalone Mountain Press and the creator of Abalone Mountain Press podcast. It's been a wild year full of book projects, zine projects, readings, so many things, interviews, um, traveling. Uh, So (laughs) I'm glad that we are finally getting this podcast back together, back and up online. So I hope you enjoy this new episode and new season of Abalone Mountain Press podcast. The reason why this episode is so important to me is because it's our very first full-length collection release from Abalone Mountain Press, and the name of the book is called The Trickster Riots by Tate Walker, and illustrated by their kid, Ohia Walker. Tate Walker is a Lakota citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe of South Dakota. They are an award-winning two-spirit storyteller for outlets like The Nation, Everyday Feminism, Native Peoples, Indian Country Today, Apartment Therapy, and Amelie. They are also featured in several anthologies, including Fierce, Essays by and about Dauntless Women, South Dakota in Poems, W.W. Norton's Everyone's an Author, and The Languages of Our Love, an Indigenous Love and Sex Anthology, forthcoming by Abalone Mountain Press. Tate recently released their full-length illustrated poetry book, The Trickster Riots, out now by Abalone Mountain Press. And you can learn more about Tate at jtatewalker.com. And Ohia Walker is a Lakota citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and is also Red Lake Ojibwe and Muscogee Creek. They are an award-winning 13-year-old trans, non-binary painter, and graphic artist combining contemporary and traditional imagery and mediums. In this debut poetry collection, Lakota storyteller Tate Walker steps into the role of a contemporary trickster to continue the purposefully disruptive legacy of a cultural icon, Iktomi the Spider. The trickster riots weaves through the origins of a lost baby queer in love and spirit ache to shapeshift into a mama spider, exploring what it means to be a good relative, an obliterator of status quo, and a builder of community. Walker's provocative wordplay channels Iktomi, with sometimes inharmonious examinations of indigeneity. The poems weaponize the English language against colonial normativity and navigate the responsibilities of an urban two-spirit writer, caring and empowering the next generations. Buckle up! The trickster riots journeys through fury and disaffection, libratic ceremony, and the lightning bolts of a struggling future ancestor. Here is my interview with Tate Walker and Ohia Walker. 
stay tuned after the interview for some updates, readings, and a giveaway. Thank you for letting me interview you for our Abalone Mountain Press podcast. First, tell us who you are and where you are from. Thanks so much for having us here. My name is Tate Walker. And I'm Ohia Walker. And we are both enrolled citizens of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, which is in South Dakota. We're both living here, though, on these Autumn and Peeposh lands in Phoenix, Arizona. We've been here about seven years. Ohia is actually also Red Lake Ojibwe out of Minnesota and also Muskogee Creek. Thank you for introducing yourself. And yeah, so you and O. We're actually our very first full-length poetry book. Yay! That just came out June 1st. And yeah, tell us a little bit about your book and why you first wrote it. Or why you wrote it. (laughs) Yeah, we're so jazzed to have this out in the world. Um, What's interesting is if you had asked me this question like five years ago, I would never have said, oh, yeah, poetry book is on my, it's in, on any list. It wasn't on a bucket list. It wasn't on a five-year list. It wasn't on any kind of list. Uh, it wasn't until, geez, about just a few months before the pandemic had actually. So, like, uh, fall 2019, I believe, was when um, I really started even performing my poetry. And, and the poetry before that had been all blog related really if anyone had seen anything it was part of uh like more social justice uh issues uh, issues concerns um just things i wasn't able to verbalize or write about in any kind of research capacity it was um so i went in a creative route and that's what i had been doing and it wasn't even like a lot there were just a handful of poems that anyone had even seen the light of <laughs> so uh otherwise my my background is in journalism about uh, nearly 20 years now and it always it always it's really fun thinking about all those all those years uh but um yeah i've been part of newspapers and magazines and uh just freelance op-ed editorials for uh, magazines and newspapers across the country um everyday feminism was a big one they actually were one of the first to uh publish one of my poems um, when uh, Johnny Depp's Lone Ranger uh, came out. And so uh, that, there's actually a version of that poem in, in this book. So um, I, I believe I read with you uh, at the Phoenix Art Museum. Yeah. And um, Indigenous People's Indigenous Day. Indigenous People's Day, right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I think um, from there we were just sort of like piggybacking on different readings and who we knew and... Uh, you know, since my poems tend to be issue based, I think folks were asking me to read around holidays, things like that. And then just getting to know you, uh, and, and you were starting your publishing house. Um, I don't think if you hadn't have asked me, what are you thinking about doing with your poems? You think you'd want to publish them? Uh, I I don't think I would have even considered a poetry book. So I I have you to thank (laughs) for this book seeing the light of day. And I really value that because, uh, I, I'm Ohia and I are getting a lot of feedback about what this book means to them, and uh, you know that it, it, it's not. You know, you're, you're. I think you're a 
your professional poetry. You've studied it. You've gone to school for it. You know what it's supposed to look like, or not supposed to look like, but you know what it feels like. You know, um, you know the authors who are who are the best at this, right? Um, and there's a lot of poetry that I'm not into. <laughs> and, um, you know, when it comes to reading poetry, I think um, I'm more in like a slam performance kind of zone when I read, um, and that's just a different audience. So. Uh, this has been um, educational for us, for me specifically, especially as a writer, as somebody who, when we're talking about being creative, poetry isn't the first thing I think about. And so um, uh, I, I love that because it's gotten me to think, I think, more like a professional poet, <laughs> uh, and if you will, like just reading with other people and how they read or what they're writing about or how they're using language to showcase their passions for the world around them. And I think that's pretty magical because... That wasn't, that's not something I had before. So, um, yeah, so about the book, though. (laughs) Uh, Trickster Riots is an ode to Iktomi. Uh, The trickster in Lakota is the spider. And uh, like a lot of tricksters, Iktomi played or functioned as a a lesson giver, if you will, or somebody who, um, uh, like folklore, right? Like, this is why you do something or why you don't do something. Iktomi was never somebody you wanted to emulate. Yeah. Like he got into a lot of trouble. Um, unless you like ducks. There's like Tommy and the ducks, and everyone <laughs> always refers to that one. And he got he he got his comeuppance, if you will. And that's generally what Iktomi's role uh, was to do for our stories in Lakota. But as you research really any trickster, I mean, including uh, Ma'i, right, mm-hmm. and, and Navajo, or yeah. um, Raven for a lot of Northwest Coast tribes, these figures are more than just cultural lesson bearers. They're disruptors of, yeah. of binaries. They force you to look at a different way of doing things, even if that way is, you know, a, a bad, if you will. But even when you go into the language, what Itomi or what other tricksters do isn't necessarily evil or good. There really isn't that that it's not that simple, right? Yeah. Everything is complex like it is in life. And and I think that's what really drew me to Iktomi or or having poetry that reflected Iktomi because um he's he's the ultimate creator, first of all, as a as a weaver, right? Um as as a spider, um, you know, that's very feminine role. Um especially the successful spiders, right? Mm-hmm. Uh they're the ones uh mm-hmm. With with the seven generations on their back, um, and and eating the patriarchy at the same time, <laughs> um, you know that's that's someone that's definitely something I wanted to emulate. But also that disruptor piece. Um, what what are we doing in our society that maybe should be questioned or done completely differently? Mm-hmm. And that's that's who Iktomi is in this book anyway. Is that disruptor piece? Nice. Thank you for that. And. You know, like you mentioned before, um, your background is mainly with journalism. And I already knew that. Like, and I, I would say one of the things that, you know, this press is like very new to me. I'm going through so many trials and errors. But the one thing I feel like I was really confident with um, was choosing the people that I wanted to publish. And I can, I can tell like when someone's like a naturally good writer, naturally talented or someone that, you know, practices their craft maybe every day. 
um, someone that reads every day, someone that writes every day. And, you know, it doesn't have to be like all of those things that someone does every day, but there are like certain things with poets that I can see, like if they, if they're a good writer, like naturally, or if they're a writer that works on it every day. But with Tate, I could tell with you, I could tell like you were naturally a good poet. And I feel like that's like a lot of natives, you know, and with you too, it's like, you're naturally a good performer. And that's like, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of really good, great poets out there that master the craft, but they can't say that they're master performers, you know? So it's like, it's always that funny thing with poetry where it's like, um, you know, there's, there's like so many different worlds of poetry. Like there's the craft world or there's the, the performing world or there's, um, you know, like the the radical poetry or the poetry like visual poetry where, you know, the poems are more um, the way they're written on, on the page and the way that they're laid out in that space can't really be performed. So it's like, I feel like there's so many facets of poetry that like, that I want to do with the press. Like I want to do like um, people that are really great with performance poetry I want to do people that are, you know, great with craft or I just want like so many different, different types of poetry. Like, I don't want to be a press where it's like, we, we like release the same type of poet or the same type of poetry or the same type of language. Like, that's not what my intention is. So like, I'm so glad that you were the first person. Cause like, you know, I think, I think you're, you're kind of like, um, like Manny said, when he saw you read, at the book release party um, that he said that his brother really liked your poetry. And he's like, yeah, my brother loved your poetry and he doesn't like poetry. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like that, you know? So, and I've heard that too about when, you know, when I w- would perform poems too. So like, it's always, and that's what I love. It's like, you know, there's, there's, poems out there for people that don't like poetry or there's poems out there for people that are like hardcore poets. But yeah. And I think you're definitely one of them that can bring a lot of diversity and, a, and like, like Iktomi, like disrupt the poetry world, Isn't that we're doing? which is great. <laughs> well, and I think it's part of your um, mission, even like, even on like your website, right. It's to publish diverse voices within indigenous creative spheres and it's uh you know maybe someone would define it as poetry and maybe someone would define it as something else and um you know all the poets you're featuring though i've found different things to just admire about them whether it's like the musicality or lyricality of some of their poems or um the way they use Diné language um to to just I mean, I don't even understand it, but I'm like, oh, God, I felt that, right? <laughs> um, and that's really cool. But, f- I mean, for us, I- I'm so personally grateful that you were willing to see the visual elements as just as important as, as the as the words that were used. And that's where Ohia comes in with their artwork. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you have anything. Did you ever think you'd be in a poetry book? No. not No, not at all. Um I always thought that my artwork would just be like 
for my grandparents and for my parents, just like birthdays and just like gifts for them. And um, also my um, interesting sixth grade, not sixth grade, like six year old me artwork from Colorado Spring that's hanging up in my kitchen that looks atrocious, but it, it's loving. It's, it's framed, it's perfect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I didn't think I'd be in a poetry book ever. And when I had first thought about the artwork that could be in the poetry, book Trixie Riots I didn't think that it would be what it came to be I don't know how to form the words right but like well just consider too the whole medium you worked in was something different than you had done before yeah because I'm usually like my favorite medium to work with is painting and paints and that's just what I'm comfortable in so I was kind of learning a whole new program while also learning how to be in a poetry book and understand poetry enough to make an art piece that matches it like the translating of a poem to drawing i think that's something that's was just really cool that you were able to do that i wouldn't have been able to see the poems in that way so and goes back to just that experimenting that we're doing here or the disrupting of poetry as a mm-hmm. as a white male like uh, space really mm-hmm. I mean that's that's most of us are you know came to it through Shakespeare or, or some uh, you know a dead white guy um, <laughs> in, in our school and um, yeah like you said Amber you hear so many people say like I don't even like poetry and I like that and I mean that's me too <laughs> like, <laughs> like so much of my early poems uh, like in high school I always talk about just being totally discouraged by teachers because I wasn't writing the way they wanted me to write. Uh, and I just couldn't get the iambic pentameter or whatever it is they were going for at the time, right? You need this kind of stanza and this kind of couplet or whatever. And rhyme. Well, I, yeah. could, well, I could define it fine. Writing that way just wasn't my thing. And I mean, I, I can write a news article all day, however you want me to write it. But uh, poetry just felt so personal. And I was like, why, why are we stuck in this way? Anyway, so um, that, that's uh, just a really um, valuable piece of all this for me. And then working with you specifically, Amber, because um, if anybody else had asked me to write it, I would have just laughed at them. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, me, a poet? Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure you want me to write about the poet, not write, not be the poet. Like, that's what I'm used to is, is interviewing and things like that. So that's exciting. Yeah, that's funny because, like, when I think of, like, Wordsworth or, like, Byron, Lord Byron, like, they would faint if they saw, like, visual poetry in the world right. these days. Like, concrete poems like I have two concrete poems that are visual poems coming out in Poetry Foundation in a couple months and like you know that's kind of in a way that's almost like breaking out of the typical format you think of like iambic pentameter and I feel like yeah your your book does the same with illustration and having illustration work um, accompanying uh, your poetry which I really love and like and it's just it's and it's it it it's so powerful too because it's like a collaboration um of not only like me and you the press or whatever but like you and O and like seeing that happen was like a really beautiful thing um and along with that too though like the people you know like this was really a community effort like 
like I'm just having memories of uh, like the fabulous interns you have, for instance, being part of the editing or even just the layout. But also like Ryan, uh, you know, uh, just coming in and showing us some bookbinding stuff yeah. or uh, uh, getting the Riso prints uh, with with Dennis or I mean just uh, or the who blurbed it even like it was such a cool like there I mean I think there were stressful times, but I also really value. And, and think positively almost in a almost a dream kind of way because it, it did go so well um, and it was such a good experience and, and I know for Lakota uh, a big part of our art is based around what energy you're putting into it and if you're going to be giving that energy away you want to make sure it's positive right like you wouldn't want to put something out there that you hated or that was super stressful mm-hmm. and that was something even with oh and working with ohia um and, and some of the times we did some artwork and it was clear that maybe we were butting heads <laughs> um on a piece for instance the cover was definitely something we went back and forth on um but we, we really took our time with it and um having a press like yours to work with it giving us that time but also just being really flexible and just understanding the humanity that goes into something like this, right? I think I know some pretty big people working with some very big publishers, and I don't think they would ever describe that collaboration as being something that was as um, heart-worky as ours was, I guess. Um, And, um, yeah, what you guys see in this book is definitely um, uh, heart work. It's, It's part of us and we're giving you the best of us i think not just ohia and i but also amber and the press oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm just like having all these flashbacks of the process um but yeah you mentioned you know we're the whole book is about you know iktomi and trickster riots and um so that's one of my questions is is like when what is your first memory of learning or hearing about Iktomi or or even just tricksters? I, I can go first, actually. Yeah, I, I, well, Do it's it. funny. I'm like, I'll go, even though... <laughs> Tell us yours. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, um, so my first trickster I ever heard about was um, the Ma'i from, you know, for Navajos. And I just remember in my Navajo class at Tuba City Boarding School... They would show the same uh, Navajo, the same cartoon of of like trickster stories, all in like a cartoon animated way, and it was all in Navajo. Mm-hmm. And like I don't understand Navajo to this day, but like I under I understood what the story was and what was going on. But like those are kind of like those cartoons are still like burned in my brain, and like and like you know the the Ma'i and everything that happened with them. But yeah, so. That's my first memory. Love it. And for those uh, non-Navajo folks, my E is coyote, right? Yeah, yeah. coyote. No, um, uh, reading Rebecca Roanhorse's um, uh, Trail of Lightning, uh, my E plays a, a pretty cool character. And Ohia and I cosplayed the main <laughs> characters in that book, and I played my E. And then I was like, man, I don't know if I should do that. <laughs> um, but he had such a cool vibe. He was like kind of Old West style um, and clever and, and like tricksy, right? Like, yeah. you, know, you have to be careful with him. But it wasn't good or bad. It just was. That's just him. Um, very Loki-ish, right? Uh, uh, chaos, if you will. But so Iktomi, the spider, 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm racking my brain in terms of the first time. Uh, so there's always... I mentioned uh, Iktomi and the Ducks. That's a big one. Um, uh, let's see. Um, I'm trying to remember her name. Uh, what? Well, I can't remember their name. Um, there's, there's a, there's a. I'm gonna have to come back to that because I can't remember her name. But she's a Lakota storyteller from way back when. She's one of our first published writers. Um, I'm seeing her face right now, and I can I see the book there, too. Anyway, <laughs> but she was one of the first ones that published that story, and I think it's one that's told quite a bit just because it's easy to tell. It's like Tomi trying, is hungry, and he tricks ducks into his bag to eat them, and then, of course, it all backfires on him, and he's the one that gets eaten kind of thing. And then there's different ways to tell it, and different people like emphasize different parts of it. But I always remember just being like, dang, that, that guy's kind of dumb like you wouldn't want to <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't want to be told like yeah. yeah he's not someone uh, that is very um <laughs> idolized i guess um but uh spiders are everywhere on the res where i'm from and just i mean they're everywhere anyway yeah. but um uh see i think the first time i understood that it wasn't just the spider as the bug was that um Dreamkeeper movie. I oh, remember yeah, that yes. made for TV. Like, yes, kind of like the like outside of um, Dances with Wolves. Kind of the first time we ever John really saw. Yes, yeah, was these, Tommy. See these, uh, yeah, like that's actual natives. I know that guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and John Trudell was like Toby, and I think it was Farmer Gary Farmer. Yeah, was, Gary Farmer was my was my age. Yeah, <laughs> his wife was Navajo. Oh yeah, his wife was so <laughs> me like a typical really Navajo woman, all rowdy. And I remember them, and I was like, they were my favorite characters. They were played yeah. really well. Their scenes were really cool, and how they were shot was kind of a different style. And I remember thinking. Oh, like the the dreads are supposed to be the legs, and I, I was young when it came out, but I was also like, ah, oh, like I could see that and it was like more of like a relatable Iktomi versus like the spider walking around around ducks, like, uh, like yeah, didn't really seem <laughs> legit to me, but um, yeah, so that Dreamkeeper was the first time I remember like, oh, that's Iktomi, like as yeah. a as a as a being that I can that's supposed to look like us, and you know, Iktomi for Lakota was um why we even left the spirit world uh, mm. he, he tricks us into where we're at now this world we were the pateo yate the buffalo nation before that and um coming up mm. from uh wind wind cave in south dakota mm-hmm. um uh that's that's our like birthplace if you will mm-hmm. and um mm. yeah it was he told me that let us out and and the light and oh, we we're just uh, like we yeah. were no longer sacred essentially at that point um because of uh, the, the spaces we were traveling through um and so to get back to that space is like the next the next journey if yeah. you will but so he told me it was part of that and um uh so it wasn't wasn't heroic <laughs> at all um and so uh but again when you look at some of the words because again uh when we come to these stories we're coming to them with a colonizer view because of the language we're using like you mentioned mm-hmm. not necessarily coming to it with a like Dene language, but like it's English, right? And so the same thing with like me. I, I wasn't hearing these stories in Lakota. I wasn't watching Dreamkeeper in Lakota. I was, mm-hmm. or, or even really told by Lakota, right? It was white people directing probably, and you know, yeah. or, or you know, behind the cameras producing. So it, it was told with that Western lens, um, and, and even like patriarchal sense too. Iktomi isn't necessarily. <laughs> male but we always tell it like it is right yeah um and and that's not 
true. Like that's it's not a gendered being. I mean, yeah. this is beyond gender, <laughs> which I kind of love. Yeah. And again, when you go back to the original language, the Lakota language, you start to see all that like break down this this colonialism break down the patriarchy break down, and it becomes less about don't do this, don't do that, and more about questioning the status quo. Mm-hmm. That's what Iktomi did, and I just love that. What about you? What was your first Iktomi <laughs> uh, relationship? Um, you totally triggered a memory. I was thinking of, um, like, when Amber first asked a question, I was thinking of one of the stories you told. I don't know who told me this, but I'm pretty sure it was you. And um, it's kind of like a gross story, but it was um, one where Iktomi pretended to to either be his daughter's like boyfriend or something like that. It was, yeah, it told me got into a lot of crap. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was really gross. So I was like, "Who is that a good story to say that that was my first experience with Iktomi? But then I remembered, oh yeah, the creation story where we were dragged from yeah. the um, sacred, like yep, that place through the um, wind cave. Yeah, yeah, through wind cave. So that was the first story that I I heard. But um, <laughs> um. I've never, like, I don't know when my mom heard, like, that Iktomi wasn't, or, like, understood themselves when Iktomi wasn't a gender or in, like, a sense, a spider either. Um, It was, but I don't think I've ever seen Iktomi as a man or a woman, Mm. but I've, like... I think that was how my mom told me the stories. Like, it never seemed like Iktomi would have a gender or how Iktomi was supposed to be viewed other than when, like, like a specific body was shown or, like, told. Like, mm. oh, he was a human today that was a he-him pronoun, yada yada. Mm. And other than that, it just would be their Iktomi. That's, that's basically what they are, so... I don't know. I always found Iktomi to be an interesting character, but I think when I think of Iktomi first, it's the weird um, boyfriend of his daughter type of thing, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of gross, but yeah, anyways. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it's, it's interesting, too, because going through what, what he is referring to is, in terms of Iktomi is um, uh, the lessons we learn from this character, this being, is um, beyond just, like, don't don't take what's not yours, right? As in, like, the like, Tommy the Ducks. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or um, you know, be wary of hitchhikers or whatever it is, right? Like, however we tell a trickster tale. But uh, there were a lot of stories told about, like, domestic violence or um, incest, even. And that's the story. <laughs> I wasn't telling it to, for that. I was more just like, oh, my gosh, this is an interesting story. And I think, oh, yeah, it happened. Yeah, either. <laughs> yeah, versus, like, a, something they grew up with as a kid. Because <laughs> um, I only just, in the last couple of years, uh, was researching Iktomi, or just strictures in general, um, and came across the story of Iktomi uh, as a... Uh, uh, portraying the daughter's mom, actually, um, they they transform, and the mom is like, "Hey, you should uh, essentially marry or have sex with this other person who is also Iktomi, uh, because Iktomi wants to be with his daughter <clears throat> in that way." Super uncomfortable conversation, but the whole point was to say, um, "You don't you be wary of like your uncle who wants to have sex with you, or be wary of a, a man who isn't someone you trust." Um, because it could be Iktomi and trying to drag you down or whatever. So uh, when we talk about, like, 
missing murdered indigenous women, for instance. So these stories have been told for hundreds and thousands of years, right? And so we, we were talking about things like incest is wrong or sexual abuse is wrong or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ikomi was often the vehicle to have those conversations. Uh, and, and so you could generalize them versus like, yeah, that's why we kicked your uncle out of the tribe. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, and so I always found that to be fascinating. Um, and again, going back to the language, Iktomi transformed all the time. I mean, um, when you talk about uh, someone who's trans or, or being able to, you know, we talk about two spirit, right? Someone who can uh, transcend mm-hmm. uh, those binaries that we put on ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's Iktomi. And they always were doing those uh, those kinds of transformations. And, and again, it wasn't always these really gross <laughs> uh, tales mm-hmm. or these really silly tales. There were there were some really cool things about communication, for yeah. instance. There's one I really loved about uh, Iktomi um, swindling a, a white farmer or someone, a settler. And yeah. it was a, a communication breakdown. And that's the twist of, oh, I thought you said you didn't want to... Uh, oh, you know, I, told, I told you the horse couldn't see so good. You thought I meant... You know, he didn't look good, but I told you he didn't, the horse was blind is what I was saying. But you, you heard it as, oh, he don't look so good. Yes, he was a beautiful horse. Um, you know, and so that's a kind of a funny one. So it's a Iktomi saving people or, or making sure his tribe has money or whatever it is. So there's, I don't know, I, I, I value stories like that because there's always so many ways to tell them. Uh, and I think we see that even in Western um, stories too, how fairy tales get told and retold in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the characters are what make them, what make people come back to them. I mean, we see this in Shakespeare too, like Romeo and Juliet is just one that just constantly can be reinvented mm-hmm. um, for different generations and different uh, relationships and scenarios. And, and Tommy's kind of the ultimate <laughs> character because it can transform into whatever you need it to. Mm-hmm. And I love that. So poetry, that's what we're bringing Nick Tomey to poetry. That's, that's what we're doing here. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, when you, the more I think about tricksters and, you know, going through this whole process of creating this book with you, you know, I started thinking about tricksters from my own tribe too. Like how a lot of it is, about listening, you know, like listening to these tales, um, you know, you have these these tales and these stories that you hear um, that are passed down from your ancestors. And, it, and in a way, it's like, yeah, they're lessons, um, but you can also see <clears throat> like who listens to the stories and like if if they use it as wisdom, you know, not to get themselves in trouble or if they're out and about being tricksters themselves. So it kind of teaches you like, um, like what you said about the predators, you know, like that could be another form of listening, listening to, you know, when you're in danger, like if you sense it, but yeah, it's, it's, I feel like there's just so many layers when it comes to, the tricksters, the lessons, and it's, and in a way it is like objective. Like it, it's how you take in those stories, how you take in those tales. And I feel like poetry is the same way. It's very objective. Like it, a poem can mean one thing to another person and to that other, to another person could be completely different on how they view it. And that's what you were kind of saying. Like there's no, like, 
there's no like right or wrong when it comes to the trickster or ikitomi. Like, um, I feel like poetry is the same way. Like, there's no like right or wrong answer for like how you interpret a poem. So like, if someone is like asking you about a poem in English class, like, there's no like that's wrong. You know, it's it. it that's Mrs. Pole in North Dakota is listening. <laughs> <laughs> AP English. Yeah, yeah, and that see, but but I feel like that yeah. concept of like this is right, this is wrong poetry is, is it, it's deeply rooted in the canon and it's rooted in like, um, white, rich literature, you know, from like very problematic, (laughs) you know, some problematic men that, you know, write poetry that, you know, that's all you hear about, um, in the literature world. So that's why, like, I think this is like such a great foundation for, Um, introducing indigenous poetry by an indigenous publisher um, and just telling these stories because, you know, people might not know that or even like uh, native youth like might see poetry or have the same experiences maybe you had with poetry as a high school student, like thinking that there's a right way to write it, there's a wrong way to write it, like, and there's no in between or there's, you know, and I feel like that's completely false when it comes to teaching writing. Um, Agreed. And and there's and that's why like you know Abalone Mountain Press is, exists because there's so many talented native writers out there and um, and they they should just know that like there's no really no right way or wrong way to write poetry and the more that you indigenize poetry the more that I feel like you're, you're, you're kind of like, what is it? Um, your ancestors, wildest dreams or whatever, you know, like decolonizing, (laughs) um, your poetry. And so I guess that leads to my next question, which is what advice would you give a native person that would like to start writing poetry? My advice for, um, I know Amber said poetry specifically, but I just say for any native artist or anyone who's, uh, any native person who's just trying to get their voice heard through any form of medium, which is writing, art, or just protesting, anything like that, is don't bow down to white people, especially white men. I don't listen to them, so neither should you. I mean, sometimes you have to, but like, like I've had experience with plenty of white teachers that I've had to fight to be heard and I get my message through by not standing down to them and I find that just they put me in a box and I don't want to be in that box so I just stand up to them and I think that you should too. Is there like (laughs) because that sounds hard though I mean if you're just someone and you think this teacher might give me an F or this person might fire me, right? Like, how do you recommend someone just start to feel more confident in that way? Um, I've always had support from my parents that have, like, if... This is my personal experience. I think that if you are in a safe space that you won't have a good feedback if you can trust the person enough or the trust the people around you enough to say something that will possibly get you hurt um like 
mentally or being fired, like my mom said, that talk to the people around you, of course, and see if that if you have a negative feedback from that person to possibly either don't do that or have a backup situation of telling someone who has higher authority that they are doing that to you or are um, just backing down. There's definitely a point where you have to stop and then if you, if that person does, like if you say something that won't hurt you in any way but it's still getting your point across and they still get pressed about it, that person probably needs to work on their own personal value so it doesn't really have to do with you. Mm-hmm. And um, I have taught multiple teachers who have fought against me, even though I've said very minimal things. And um, I've told my parents and they've talked to those people and they've always fought for me and helped me just mm, build my person and my confidence to fight against something that is problematic in my especially like with teachers and the education system but I have had moments where it's a teacher that I just met and I don't I've cried in front of them because they won't they weren't listening to me Mm. and um that was probably a like that made me lose trust in that teacher who I had trust before. But my parents listened to me and the teacher did end up apologizing and it just took them a second to figure out what they can change to make themselves a better person to help a student who is just telling them not to read a really racist um, literature assignment by a really white a really racist white person who uses very bad words. <laughs> One, I think Ohia brings up a really good point about trust. The you know part of the advice here is surround yourself with community that can uplift you. And what Abalone Mountain Press is doing is just that. It's a it's a space for indigenous creatives to showcase their passions in in multiple formats uh, and, and multiple venues around multiple people. Right, like. It's not just a one-size-fits-all piece. It's you have something to share, and I'm going to give you space to do that. And I think that's pretty magical because, like I mentioned, if it had been someone else, I would have probably laughed at them because, first of all, there was probably no way they would have liked this experimental type of poetry that I do. Uh, they would not have said yes to illustrations. They, you know, in the timing of, of the, the poetry even or the publication to be, you know, Pride Month, for instance, I think, that would have been laughed at too. Like, no, we have our own timeline. Um, you know, and so the, there are things that um, happened only because of the community that we built and the trust that we were able to build together here. And so that goes whether you're a young person in your school trying to do something you're passionate about, whether that's your curriculum or a paper you're writing or whatever it might be, or a professional or, you know, career-minded or even university-level uh, creative who's trying to get uh, a message out, uh, something that you're passionate about, find community, uh, find a writer's group, find um, a, a, a space that can allow you to be yourself and will uplift you because of that, not use you as a token or, uh, you know, wants you to be involved just so they can have a brown person in the picture, which I think a lot of us have been 
that person. Um, and, you know, and it's not a good feeling, right? Like, oh, oh, yeah, you're the native kid in this class, so tell us about um, it's Crazy Horse, right? Like, fuck, I wasn't there. I don't know about Crazy <laughs> Horse, right? Like, like um, that's, and so that's, um, you know, uh, you know, he mentioned, um, you know, as, as, as their parent, I would talk to a teacher and that was only after Ohia made their concerns noted and it wasn't being listened to. Ohia has always been able to advocate for themselves. But a big piece of that is like the aunties <laughs> that we surround them with are all pretty hardcore, awesome people <laughs> who, um, you know, are constantly going up against legislators or constantly going up against big corporations or, you know, big oil, right? <laughs> like, oh, we've got folks that have done some really amazing things, uh, in terms of yeah, in terms of um, making the world a better place for indigenous folks, and so if they can do it, you know we can do it with Indian in the cupboard or some racist trope that's being taught again and again and again. And uh, what Ohia didn't say is they've won every single one of those arguments. And again, it's about who you're surrounding yourself with and who's uplifting you, because folks, I think. I have to believe they want to do better, right? And so if you're a native creative out there feeling like you're not being listened to, again, find those spaces that will, and then know that they've got your back. Um, and Abalone Press is one of those folks. If you're in the Valley, you know, we do writing circles sometimes. We do um, lots of cool open mic nights. Um, you know, f- follow us on our social medias because uh, we'll often post, you know, stuff that's coming up that was open to everyone uh and especially if you're um you know indigenous in the valley but uh we got some great people doing uh the the live streaming of that so you can participate wherever you're at uh and this stuff is happening across indian country and so find those find those spaces participate in them follow the creatives uh that you that you admire put your stuff out there uh i, I was working with um osborne school district elementary kiddos in their um, uh, Indian ed program last summer. And Amber was actually part of this because <laughs> uh, Amber made the poetry book we eventually created, uh, which they loved, by the way. And I, um, <laughs> it was cool because, of course, the first thing all those kids said, and these were kids age first grade to, <laughs> to uh, I think, sixth grade. And it was only so young because so many of them were siblings, so they had to allow the younger siblings to be part of this group. There's about thirty some kids in there, and um, I think most of them are like, "I'm not a, I'm not a poet. Why are you teaching me poetry?" And for the most part, what we did was expose them to a poet that's doing something like a concrete poem, right? The shape of something, or doing like a narrative poem or an ode poem, things they could relate to. I've got somebody that means something to me. I can write about that, right? I love my mom. I love pizza. You know, the, the, it went the gamut in terms of what they were writing about. But some of them who didn't feel like they had the word capacity, like, say, a first grader, I said, well, what does that look like to you when you're thinking of the person or the thing, right, that you want to write an ode to? What, who is that person? Show us. And they did. And they, one did, like, a transformer, right? Like, all these cool things. Like, and that's, again, the great thing about indigenous anything, indigenous creative, is um, we are not one size fits all. Like, the whole monolith expectation. Ohia was talking about the box they put us in. These expectations they have of us as Native people, right? You, the long hair, the brown skin, the stoic features, right? The um, the buckskin in the teepee, right? That you know every <laughs> single thing about Native people, even right. though you're from Run Tribe. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, who is your grandma? Tell us about her and her royalty lineage. Um, yeah, so the... Uh, um, <laughs> 
so these kiddos were were showcasing essentially what our bigger message is here is yeah there is no box (laughs) and i think that's the best thing right um so many of us have this concept of like and i feel like this generation's really this this upcoming generation's really pushing us away from it but when i was growing up and i think maybe too for you amber as well we heard this this idea of crabs in a barrel Mm. um this idea that native people if they saw someone doing well whatever that might be whether it's having their own home or nice job or whatever it was getting the more per cap i don't know um that our that our instinct was to drag them back down into the barrel with us so you saw a crab going out of the barrel the other crabs would bring that crab down and of course the whole point is First of all, we aren't crabs, and we were never meant to be in a barrel. We were never meant to be in a box, right? Like, stop shoving us in those in those spaces, right? Those confinements, and and you'll see us flourish, right? And and as a mom with a with a kiddo uh, that's doing some amazing things, my I don't I no longer uh, want this whole idea of like, resilience, right, or, or survival, right? I need to see thrivance. And, a, and this book for me is that happening. Uh, you know, I love that the poetry is getting out there and I love that people are um, experiencing it in, in, in positive ways with their families, right? And people are sending pictures of them reading it with their kids, especially their queer kids. I think there's a lot of uh, relatability for um, uh, queer kids who maybe didn't see themselves in poetry that, in that way. And I love that. Um, but for me, it's... Uh, it, it's just so much more because, again, it's it's a piece of myself out there, but it's a piece of myself that wasn't confined. And uh, I keep saying it, Amber, but um, that's that's you, <laughs> uh, because uh, the, this poetry was always confined inside, and and without you to um, gently and encouragingly give it a place to breathe, like it, it would still be inside. <laughs> so I value that that this collaboration has just um, allowed it to flourish, right? And that thrivance is, is so much a part of this book. And so um, community, that's that's the best advice I have, mm-hmm. is, is find it. And um, it's not just uh, something that is, is there to support you. You are also uplifting it. And so what is that medicine you're bringing? What is that piece of yourself you're bringing? And uh, once you have that, man, there's, there's only going up from there for everybody. Thank you for that. That was very insightful, and I feel like I learned so much <laughs> from your your advice. And I hope you know there's a native youth out there listening and taking you know some advice. And if they want to write, or if, yeah, or if they just want you know to be in, in part of art in some capacity, whether it's like painting, drawing, beadwork. Um, you know, if you want to be a fashion designer, like, I feel like any type of art, like, this is such great uh, advice, you know, finding that support system, finding um, other people that, you know, love the same things that you like, because there's so much room for collaboration with other Native artists. And, you know, that's, that's a huge part of why Abalone Mountain Press exists, because we have so many people that, you know, Sometimes people just see me, but like it, there's so many hands behind this this uh, press and so many native artist hands that you know are supporting us and so it's just great. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for letting me interview you today. Oh, and Tate, thank you, thank you, Wopla Tonka, Chai Megwitch. 
<laughs> and you can officially buy the Trickster Riots at abalonemountainpress.com slash, is it slash or backslash store? And you will see the book. Um, and yeah, it's very exciting. We're all super excited for it. Um, we did a ton of readings this past June for the Trickster Riots. And our next big reading that we'll be doing is going to be uh, in Santa Fe Woo-hoo! during the Santa Fe Indian Market. So yes. our next reading is going to be August 20th, 2022. And it'll be in the Mokna Courtyard. And our reading is called Beaded Water Ooh. Reading. And Tate, yeah. <laughs> Tate will be reading. Um, we'll have Bodera, who's our next Woo-hoo! guest for our next podcast. Yeah. Uh, Kinsale Drake, Ew. who did the Hummingbird Heart uh, zine. And then we'll have some other really great poets like Laylee Long Soldier will be there. And we're all going to be girl crushing yeah. on her. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's going to be a really great reading. And um, check out our website, check out our Instagram, all Abalone Mountain Press um, for that event that'll be coming up. We'll have the flyer out in the next couple weeks. And yeah, and we'll also, we're also going to be doing a giveaway for this episode. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be really cool. And part of that giveaway, we're actually going to be giving out three books of the Trickster Riot. So um, yeah, check out our Instagram, social media, and also Tate's Instagram and social media, which is... Thanks. Uh, Walker Imagining. So W-A-L-K-E-R Imagining on Instagram. Uh, Also on Facebook, too. And then my website is jtatewalker.com. Fantastic. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening to our interview. And we are so happy to be back. Season two, episode one. Woo. See you next time. Bye. And that was my interview with Tate Walker and Ohia Walker. Yeah, like I said, um, our next event is going to be in Santa Fe during Santa Fe Indian Market Weekend. And the name of our reading is called Yoto, Beaded Water Reading. And this is a collaboration reading with Words of the People. And the poets that will be reading for this event will be Laylee Long Soldier, Beth Piatote, Tate Walker, Bodera Joe, Kinsel Drake, and Manny Lowley. We will also have a musical performance by Kaylin Faye Barnowski. I hope I'm saying that right. And yeah, it'll be great. Um, we'll be in the Mokna Courtyard Saturday, August 20th. 2.30 to 4.30 p.m. And for our giveaway this month, we are giving out three books of Tate's and O's, The Trickster Riots. Um, for information about our giveaway, go to our Instagram or go to our Facebook. So I'm thinking that we're going to give out two books on Instagram and one book on Facebook. And yeah, just go to our our uh, our social media 
and we'll have the directions for our giveaway. And that is our show for this month, season two, episode one. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Next month, we have our second poet and second book that's coming out by Abalone Mountain Press, which is Desert Teeth by Bodera Joe. And I am going to interview Bodera about their writing process and everything that they went through to get their book written and their journey. Thank you. See you next time.